CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. We'll be joined shortly by the great Heather McDonald. Heather is a longtime fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a city journal contributing editor and a prolific author. She has an upcoming book, When Race Trumps Merit, coming out here just in the next month or so about the war on meritocracy, the DEIification, if you will, of American society, especially in the aftermath of the BLM Antifa riots in 2020 and all that, that has entailed for the metastasis of the woke ideology. And for longtime listeners of this program, you know that that has been a recurring theme of this particular show. We've had any number of guests. Amy Wax recently talking about her own struggle session at Penn Law. We had Ilya Shapiro last summer come on and talk about his cancellation from Georgetown Law. We, we have now had any number of people come on and talk about the woes that are pervading higher education, corporate America, and just this fundamental tension about who we want to be as Americans. And on the one hand, you have the actual Americanist version of America, a.k.a. an America that is actually rooted in its founding principles, that is actually rooted in its founding ethos, that is rooted in its founding sense of fundamentally who we are tangibly speaking as a people. This is the Americanism view. This is kind of encapsulated by the end of the Trump presidency when Donald J. Trump promulgated the 1776 Commission. Do you guys remember that? This was very towards the end of his presidency, probably around the time of the election itself. It was chaired by Hillsdale College President Larry Arn, if I recall, the 1776 commission basically was devised as an antidote to the Nicole Hannah-Jones Black Lives Matter 1619 Project view of America as systemically founded in awful racism and colonialism and white supremacy and all of that there. And the broader problem, this is what we're going to discuss with Heather when we bring her on here, the broader problem going on for years, going back for decades, again, is this question of who we want to be. Do we want to be a country that is founded on the actual words of the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal? Then no one is born more or less equal than others. Then no one is due better or worse treatment than others when it comes to things like higher education and mission, when it comes to things like advancement in civil society, in corporate America, and any of the various spheres of excellence. Do we want to be a meritocracy? Do we want to be a society structured upon the advancement of individuals in the professions and in just the country in general based on your skills, what you can actually offer? Or based on what the left nowadays calls equity, about this idea that we have to be proportionally equal when it comes to race, gender, immigration status, national identity. Who the hell knows? I mean, I, I mean, at some point, this becomes obviously a zero-sum game. I mean, who knows how long you want to draw it up there. But Heather has been on the forefront of, of this war on excellence. And 
it could not be timelier because DEI, in many ways, diversity, equity, and inclusion, so to speak, has become, from my perspective, the logical endpoint. It is the telos, you might say, if you want to kind of take it at a level. It is the logical culminating endpoint of the woke ideology is what Heather refers to as diversity crass, professional diversity bureaucrats. We did a whole recent episode on this wretched so-called DEI Dean Tyrion Steinbach, who, thank God, is now on administrative leave out at Stanford Law School and her role in the struggle session for Judge Kyle Duncan out there. DEI is kind of weaponized woke ideology in action there. So we're going to bring on Heather to talk about all of that. She had a recent essay on DEI as well. So we look forward to that conversation. So we're going to take it to a quick commercial break here. And then on the other side, we will be joined by Heather McDonald of the Manhattan Institute. Please stay with us. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. As previously mentioned, what a thrill to be joined this week by the great Heather McDonald. Heather is the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor for City Journal, MI's wonderful in-house publication, and the author of many outstanding books, including the forthcoming When Race Trumps Merit, How the Pursuit of Equity Sacrifices Excellence, Destroys Beauty, and Threatens Lives. So Heather McDonald, what a thrill. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Oh, it's an honor to be with you, Josh. Thank you for having me. No, it really is an honor. I tell friends this. I don't know if I've ever told you specifically. I, I legitimately view you as probably one of the two most really kind of just courageous. I don't know how to say it. One of the two most courageous professional conservative women in the United States of America today, along with Amy Wax, who was a recent guest on this very show as well. So I, I really could not hold you in, in higher esteem. And I'm so thankful for what you've done over the years when it comes to policing, criminal justice. DEI equity and all of that. And we want to get into all of those various topics here. But on kind of the topic of your book, When when Race Trumps Merit, that's actually exactly really where I wanted to start the conversation. I think if there's one idea that I've come to associate with you along with The War on Cops, which is a, another former book of yours, it is this idea that we in the West and perhaps in the United States in particular are engaged in this years-long, decades-long struggle session, if you will, against the very idea of merit, of meritocracy, of a society that should be structured on vocational advancements where, you know, as the proverbial expression goes, the cream rises to the top. And the question I wanted to ask you to kind of lead off the conversation here is, you've been following these trends for a long time. Can you kind of walk us through kind of a bit of the intellectual history as to when you first started to notice the war on meritocracy accelerating and just how bad it's gotten from your perspective in recent years? 
Well, first of all, Josh, it would be churlish of me, but it, it's going to be churlish of me to quibble at all with that superb and, and absolutely generous introduction, except my, uh, you, you, you cut a, a knife through my throat when you said conservative woman. <laughs> I don't identify as female particularly, so uh, <laughs> you know, that is part of the problem that I think in this uh, world that we have today is necessarily uh, foregrounding what I would say is irrelevancies of, of somebody's uh, self, which is either race or sex, or now the fantastically over-inflated idea of, of gender identity. So anyway, like I'm probably the least female identifying female around, but in <laughs> any case, I, I still am very, very grateful for, uh, for all, the, all your kind words. And yes, I, you know, I didn't start as a conservative. I was not particularly political, but I've always been opposed to racial preferences because I think that the striving for and the achievement of excellence is what pushes humanity out of its natural state, which is squalor, poverty, disease, premature death. Uh, the belief that the human mind can work through reason to understand the secrets of the universe the extraordinary development of the scientific method with its uh, the, the idea of randomized controlled experiments, testing hypotheses, trying to falsify them. All of this is undertaken under the belief that human beings should pursue their talents to the utmost and nothing should hold them back and they should be rewarded for their creation and their achievement. Now, the dominant idea in our world is that any kind of disparity in representation, and it is above all driven by race, any type of racial disparity must be the product of racism. That is the only allowable explanation for any kind of racial disparity, whether it's the overrepresentation of blacks in prison or the underrepresentation of blacks at MIT's physics department or in Google's uh, computer science department, engineering labs, cancer labs. If there are not 13% blacks there, it must be because somebody somewhere or something is discriminating. And we've been going around tearing down every type of meritocratic and behavioral standard in the name of fighting that racism because they all have a disparate impact on blacks. When did this begin? I think it's one of the crucial beginnings was the 1970s. You had a book that came out uh, by that was about blaming the victim. The idea was that if society noticed that there were certain behaviors that were counterproductive, joining a gang, uh, having children out of wedlock as a teenager or as a, somebody in, in one's 20s, not going to school, being truant, dropping out, getting involved in drugs. And if one noticed that those were behaviors that jeopardized one's chance for a, a stable middle-class uh, life, you were blaming the victim. You could not talk about individual behavior, the only allowable explanation, again, was systemic racism. So that was in the 70s. 
We saw in the 70s the start of the affirmative action racial preference regime with its constitutional imprimatur of, of Bakke versus University of California at Davis, that, that regime that has done so much destruction to academic learning and competitiveness that is now up for a very severe challenge in the Supreme Court. But that was the idea that black medical students applying to the University of California at Davis campus should not have to reach the same standards of academic achievement as college students, as white and Asian students. So the Davis Medical School admitted black students and, and excluded uh, higher scoring white students and Asian students to make room for those black students. That was challenged by Baki, who had not gotten in, and uh, the set aside for, for lower achievement students that were black was, was affirmed by the Supreme Court. It began in the 70s. It's only gotten worse. And now we have things like medical schools that are saying you don't have to take MCATs at all. We're changing the standards of medical licensing exams. Uh, we have the, the federal science agencies saying, well, we're only going to give you a, a grant to study the origins of cancer if you can prove that you have a, a sufficiently diverse lab. Uh, so it's getting worse. Uh, you know, the most immediate problem with this attack on behavioral and meritocratic standards is our current crime explosion. We're tearing down criminal law enforcement prosecution all because those neutral standards have a disparate impact on blacks. We've decided we would rather not enforce the law than enforce it in a colorblind constitutional fashion and put criminals in jail if those criminals are black. Really a lot to unpack there. One thing that you did there that I want to just probe a little deeper on was the connection of all of this prioritization or focus on merit and the concomitant kind of elevation of equity or intersectionality, whatever you want to call it, that was the Baki regime from 1978. This is the affirmative action regime that finally, once and for all, might be eradicated, uh, God willing, by the U.S. Supreme Court later this term in the next few months. I think that's a very astute point. It's actually something, despite being a lawyer myself, that I actually just don't really think about a whole lot. I mean, you kind of think about this whole kind of wokeism, what the SAS Wesley Yang has referred to as the successor ideology. I mean, at least for me personally, you know, you could see a lot of this happening in the so-called resistance after the 2016 election. And it really, really took up steam, as you have written at great length after the George Floyd riots in the summer of 2020. But I think it's a very astute point, actually, kind of taking it back as at least one kind of origin point to the contemporary American affirmative action regime. So I'm kind of wondering if you can just unpack that a little further, because this is quite timely. I mean, the Supreme Court literally might finally overturn Bakke, might overturn the Grutter case from the 2000s, and once and for all get rid of state-sanctioned racial discrimination when it comes to public university admissions. So can you just like unpack from your perspective kind of this idea, which I really like, that affirmative action was almost kind of a predecessor to modern wokeism? Is that kind of what I hear you saying in a way? Absolutely. Racial preferences are a predecessor or they are actually, I would say they are the essence of wokeism. Their, their premise, which is that standards are racist and that uh, we should engineer racial proportionality regardless of the 
tossed in, in meritocratic standards. That is wokeism. Wokeism is looking around at the world, seeing disparities and saying those disparities must be the result of racism. So with Baki, you had the court affirming the legitimacy of schools deliberately lowering standards for black students, having two sets of standards, using race as a qualification or a substitute for qualifications. You may not be competitive on your SATs or your medical school admission test, the MCATs, but you're black, and so that gives you extra points. Um, and for me, the biggest problem with the racial preference regime, and I prefer to use racial preferences over the more longstanding and ubiquitous term affirmative action, because affirmative action for some people who may still be naive uh, enough to think that all affirmative action means was its original sense, which was we were hoodwinked to think that affirmative action would just mean outreach and making sure that you had sent, you know, the notice for a, a contracting job with the city of Los Angeles to uh, inner city schools or to black unions and, and to make sure that you were you were widening your net without lowering standards. That is not what's going on. What it is, is racial preferences. It is preferring people of a certain race with lower qualifications over those of a, of a non-preferred race. That's what it is all about. That's what affirmative action is. It is not outreach. It is preferences and it is double standards. Um, so that began, you know, it was going on actually before Harvard uh, has had a very early program of racial preferences. And that Harvard didn't realize that, well, if this is going to even minutely work. We're going to have to privilege black people from the upper class. Their original racial preference class was pretty poor people, uh, you know, from all over the country, but probably from Rochester and uh, Roxbury and Dorchester. And that was a complete disaster. These guys bombed out. So that that got scrapped. And so you had imported covertly uh, some some economic distinctions as well. But by and large, even with that more selective look within the class of preferred black students, you still are admitting students that are less qualified than their peers. And nobody that opposes racial preferences is saying blacks shouldn't go to school. They're saying they should go to college on the same conditions as everybody else, which is with academic qualifications that are shared by your peers. We are putting these preference beneficiaries at a tragic disadvantage by catapulting them into schools for which they are academically not competitively qualified. This is it'd be the same thing and it goes on with sex. If MIT admits me because it needs more gender equality, which makes me want to throw up, as I say, and I have an SAT of 650 on an 800-point scale, but my non-preferred peers at MIT are averaging 800 out of 800 on their math SAT, what's going to happen to me my first year? I'm going to flounder in my freshman calculus class because that class will be legitimately pitched towards the average capacity of my peers, 
which is an 800-point SAT. And I'm not going to be able to catch up. The diversity bureaucracy is waiting in the wings to tell me that my academic difficulties are the source, are the product of misogyny at MIT. I will have a chip on my shoulder. It will be cultivated. And I'll go around demanding more diversity bureaucrats. Well, what's happened? What have we seen with the history of racial preferences? Those of us from even the 70s who remember the black table in colleges, the self-segregation, the demand for separate uh, graduation ceremonies, separate freshman orientations. This all began early on because, again, we were putting blacks under a insuperably cruel handicap of being put into a selective college when they are not ready for that college. They sh Instead of going to, say, Duke University, these preference beneficiaries would have been fine at North Carolina University or North Carolina State getting a perfectly decent education. But the, the damn college presidents, the diversity bureaucrats, feel like they need to look out over their ocean of diverse faces and feel self-righteous. And so the diversity regime has actually increased racial divisions, mismatched students are not keeping up in their STEM professions. Uh, there's a very nice study that was done out of Duke by one of the expert witnesses in the case now before the Supreme Court that found that Black students were actually more likely to enter Duke intending to major in a science field, but they dropped out of their science major at way disproportionate rates so that by the time you got to senior year at Duke, the graduating science class was overwhelmingly white and Asian because the black students had been admitted to Duke with one standard deviation, lower SAT scores, and they couldn't keep up. They would have kept up at North Carolina State and would have graduated with a STEM degree, right. gone on to have a decent job in a science lab as a tech or whatever. So this is a dysfunctional regime that has only increased racial hostility, tension, and it's extremely dangerous for the civil peace. No, I think that's extremely well said. And, you know, when you explain here the idea that students might disproportionately struggle if they get in, if they're objectively underqualified on, on the metrics or on the resume here, this is what the academic literature invariably refers to as so-called mismatch theory. You know, another term for mismatch theory is common sense. I mean, it, it, is, it is pure common sense. I recall it the oral argument for the uh, the Fisher case, the University of Texas versus Fisher case, which is one of the litany of affirmative action cases that reached the Supreme Court about a decade ago or so. Justice Scalia, the late great Justice Scalia, raised this at oral argument, and then you know the left leaning. Twitter warriors and the blue check Twitterati were like, oh, my God, this horrible racist. How could he talk about mismatch theory? I mean, you know, Heather, you mentioned Duke. I'm not sure if you know this or, or that was just kind of um, serendipitous, but I went to Duke. That's my, actually my undergraduate alma mater. And, and, and I saw I, I literally saw in person exactly what you are describing. Um, I, I mean, I can name any number of, of various anecdotes. But, you know, this notion here that that you get in, not necessarily due to the underlying merits, but you'd get into to, to a prestigious university on extraneous factors that have nothing whatsoever to do with academic achievement or prospective achievement and the notion that you somehow might be able to keep up with your peers, it's just ludicrous. I, I mean, it completely flies in the face of common sense. 
And I think you laid out very nicely for the listeners how this really was kind of setting the seeds for all of the wokeism and post-George Floyd riots, in particular insanity that we've been dealing with in recent years. So I want to get to a very quick commercial break here. We will be right back with you with Heather McDonald, and then we're going to get into that post-George Floyd riots insanity. Stay with us. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. So, Heather, I want to transition to DEI and kind of some of the post-George Floyd riot stuff, but I think you wanted to get a word in there on this idea of mismatch theory and it really just being common sense. Well, yes. I mean, this is the mystery. And, and if you can answer it, Josh, I, I would love to hear. It does seem to us absolutely common sense. Why do, why do people not get mismatch? I don't get it. And the only way that you can deny that you are going to put somebody at a handicap by admitting him to an academic environment for which he is objectively competitively unqualified is a form of nihilism that is absolutely corrosive. It means that you do not believe that those objective tests of merit or academic skills mean anything. And if that's the case, why not go to a lottery completely? The fact of the matter is these schools that are employing radically different standards of of entrance for under uh, underrepresented minorities, blacks and Hispanics on the one hand and whites and Asians on the other. They believe that these tests matter because what they do is scrupulously race norm within these separate categories. So they rank white and Asian students against each other and they'll go from the top and they'll rank black and Hispanic students within their own separate category and they'll go from the top and they'll choose the top. But if you're at the same time denying that mismatch exists, you're saying that these tests don't matter. So they're in a completely hypocritical position. And I also wonder, we're all forced to live lies in our reality today. You know, we're forced to pretend that racial preferences don't exist, that there are no race preferences in in college. Anybody who says there are, like Amy Wax, gets canceled. But students like yourself, they all compare SATs senior year in high school. They can see, you know, that the students with very high high SATs are not getting into their choice, first choice schools, whereas the black students with lower SATs are, and yet they go into college and then they're supposed to pretend that everybody's been admitted on an equal basis. And if anybody notices the differences in academic achievement once there, they're accused of being racist. It's like we pretend that the people that are committing these grotesque anti-Asian crimes that are beating 80-year-old, 90-year-old Asians to a pulp, leaving them to die in garbage bins, as has happened in San Francisco, we're supposed to pretend that that's white supremacy. The videos show that it's overwhelmingly 
black thugs. And yet the narrative forces us all to live a lie. It is quite stunning. Sometimes I kind of just want to pinch myself and like I say, like, is this real? I, I, I mean, I went to public school. I mean, I was, you know, in, in, in the 90s, 2000s, I was part of the generation that, you know, was taught that Martin Luther King was something kind of like a secular kind of godlike figure. And, you know, say whatever you will about Martin Luther King. There's been a lot of interesting literature in recent years about how he might not have been kind of the personal hero, I think, to put it mildly, that many view him as, especially when it comes to his treatment of women and all of that. But put all that aside. I mean, simply standing for the proverbial Martin Luther King proposition that he so famously said in his I Have a Dream speech about judging us not on the color of our skin, but the content of our character. You know, it's his line, Heather, that you've heard a million times by now. I, I mean, I think literally saying that gets you called a racist these days. And, and, and it's just sometimes I really do just have to pinch myself and say, like, is this is this real world? I mean, is this is this really happening around us there? And it, it is. I, I mean, you look at some of these executive orders that the Biden administration is promulgating when it comes to kind of the suffusion of DEI ideology throughout the entire federal bureaucracy, the Ibram X Kendiization, and that I've referred to it as sometimes of just of the entire federal government and really just ruling class institutions in, in general. From the corporate boardroom to the classroom, I mean, it, it really is just unreal. But I, I, I mentioned DEI there briefly, and I want to talk about DEI. So, Heather, you had this wonderful recent essay for Quillette talking about this terrible recent incident out at Stanford Law School that, that I devoted a whole episode of this show to discuss pertaining to Judge Kyle Duncan and his struggle session. That is a term that he himself used, that Judge Duncan used in his Wall Street Journal op-ed of the subject, his struggle session with these overprivileged woke mobsters out at Stanford Law School. I want you to talk about your essay for Quillette and the Stanford Law School experience in general here. And I, I guess the, the other question that kind of comes to mind is, is this it? I mean, is this kind of the apex of the DEI movement? I, I think at some point the American people have to look at incidents like what happened to Judge Duncan and say, like, they have to fundamentally ask themselves, is this the future that we want? I mean, I mean how much worse can weaponized DEI get than this, I guess? <laughs> That's the question. I, I mean, one, one keeps thinking it can't get worse, it can't get worse, and as Kingler told us, it can always get worse. So I, I just don't know. You know, it, is, it was an amazing event, and, you know, my point there is let's step back and think how weird it is that you have the point person from the administration being a obviously low IQ, if you look at her writing, diversity bureaucrat mediating between a highly qualified federal judge and this rabble. And that is because the diversity function is now the fulcrum for everything that happens in a university. Everything is translated through racism. Students are encouraged to think that they can be wounded by ideas that they disagree with because if they are in a so-called marginalized community, they are so vulnerable and so at risk for their safety that an idea remotely expressed because Duncan, his main sin for the Stanford law students, and this was driven by the LGBTQ group called Outlaws, his main sin was as a private lawyer to have demurred from the from the gay ideology. You know, he, he thought that states should be able to define marriage. There shouldn't be a federal definition. He he said that high schools should not have to allow males to use female bathrooms. As a judge, he refused to use she for a federally convicted sex child sex pornography possessor. 
Um, but that's not what he was going to speak about on Stanford. But his mere presence uh, on campus allegedly put the physical and psychological safety of the LGBTQ lobby at risk. And this was all channeled through a diversity administrator. That is very weird. And the question we should have is, where's the faculty? You know, there's been a letter now by the dean that is very good. I There's things to quibble with. She throws a reward to the LGBTQ lobby at the end by saying, well, because you just wanted to bring more attention to your plight, we're going to give you more programming. Well, that kind of undercuts everything. But the faculty should be backing her up, and they're all silent. They're absolute cowards, or they're complicitous in this narcissistic idea that identity trumps ideas, that law itself should be approached through the lens of identity, that, that a lawyer should not be expected to put aside the trivialities of his gender preference or sexual preference or sex ID or race and become the conduit of idea, principle, and argument. If a law school can't even teach that idea, then yes, when does this end? And I don't know. I have to say I'm a pessimist by nature, and I'm reluctant to ever feel encouraged about things. But there is, it seems, in the political sphere, some growing resistance to it of these governors led by Ron DeSantis who are starting to say no more funding for these parasitic, superfluous, sinecure-filled diversity offices. They're moving into very controversial territory by saying that there's certain divisive ideas which can't shouldn't be taught. That's a more challenging issue. I'm, I'm not quite fully made up on that one. But maybe there is signs of a, of a pushback. But it's going to be very tough because, as I say, here is the modus operandi of the left. And unless we can fight back on this, they win. If they can point to a di any di racial disparity and the only allowable explanation is racism, they win. It is all coming down. What we have to put forward are the academic skills gaps, the crime gaps that explain those racial disparities. Yeah, and you've obviously been at, at the forefront of that. I mean, sometimes, Heather, I read your work, your op-eds, your essays, books and whatnot. And you just say statistics. I mean, like you literally just present statistics when it comes to disproportionate rates of criminality for certain types of violent crime or property crime across different racial groups or other kind of demographic groups. And sometimes I read that and my instinct on the one hand is like, is she, you know, is she being edgy for saying this? And no, there's nothing edgy about just saying statistics. Rather, it is that we have been socially conditioned for years and years to avoid talking about just hard and obvious truths and statistics when it comes to disproportionate rates for criminology or disproportionate rates for admission on the merits or, or what a pure kind of merit-based admission system would look like. And it's really just obviously just a whole a whole lot of garbage. And like you, I'm not entirely sure exactly how to get us out of this just predicament that we in the West and perhaps in the U.S. in particular have put ourselves in. I do want to kind of quickly talk about possible remedies. You know, you briefly mentioned Governor DeSantis and, and what's happening here in Florida, where I live. We had a recent guest on this show, Max Eden of the American Enterprise Institute, to kind of talk about what Florida is doing on, on the education front in particular. The way that I typically formulate this 
is that Ronald Reagan's famous formulation was that the um, the scariest words in the English language are, quote, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And, and, and that made a lot of sense when Ronald Reagan said it, when marginal tax rates were 50 percent or higher, when socialism seemed to be on, on the ascendant, inflation was through the roof. I mean, there were various kind of economic maladies that made that Reagan formulation quite apropos for the time. But we're dealing, and to be clear, a government overreach in various areas is, of course, still a problem. But the real problem, at least as I see it, is the metastasis of this woke successor ideology, whatever you want to call it there. And I think that when you have something like that that has pervaded not just through the public sector, but through the various tentacles of the private sector as well, the only logical way to fight back against it, which has been a late motif of my commentary for years now, is through the prudential use of state power. And you, know, you mentioned DeSantis in Florida, who I think has kind of taken on that mantra as well. So I'm, I'm curious if you would agree with that way of assessing the problem and if there are any kind of specific remedies to kind of cure our DEI woes that come to mind. Well, first, I have to backtrack again, because what you say is always requires a response because it's so insightful. So I just want to jump back briefly to the sense of, you know, is it edgy to give out statistics on Black Crime Commission or the achievement gap? And, and we've been conditioned not to talk about these truths. And it is amazing. We're supposed to believe in white supremacy. Whites are self-canceling. I mean, we are, the, the society right. now is based in white culling. And, and we're being held hostage by inner city black dysfunction. Let's face it. That is what's tearing down all our standards because they all have disparate impact. And yet we're supposed to believe that whites are racist when in fact they deny the evidence right in front of their eyes. You know, for years we had the media would stop listing the, the race of criminals because they were so disproportionately black. I mean, in, in Los Angeles, any given black is 37 times more likely to commit a robbery than a white. Uh, in, in places like New York City, all drive-by shootings, virtually all are committed by blacks and Hispanics. Uh, so it's, you know, and the videos, again, the videos don't lie. We see these videos of the mass looting, the shoplifting, the brutal beatings. And we're all supposed to, again, we're all pretending it's white supremacy. There's nothing like it in human history of a group that is this self-canceling. And it's because we're all terrified that the achievement gap is not going to close. And so we are proleptically coming up with the only allowable explanation for that still yawning achievement and behavioral gap, which is racism. As far as whether I support the prudential use of state power, it, I'm, I'm ambivalent about that too. But, you know, for the usual reasons, and, and you as a lawyer too, we're trained to think in terms of neutral principles and realize that the tables can turn. Any principle or precedent that we set out will be used by the other side when they have power against us. But obviously, the argument that that the the national conservative, uh, you know, philosophers like yourself would say that, but they already have the power. How much worse can it be? They are already using it. So why shouldn't we use it back? And you know that the hypocrisy of the left is just so hilarious when they will say. Um, if somebody wants to ban diversity, equity, inclusion statements, so there was recently the, the Chronicle of Higher Education actually quoted a professor at the University of Texas, Austin, who compared the banning of required DEI statements in faculty hiring. These are these 
these loyalty oaths where a professor has to write an essay about how he will advance diversity, equity, and inclusion to even be considered for hiring. This is applies in, in biology and physics and math departments. Albert Einstein would not get hired today as a professor because he devoted himself to understanding the secrets of the world. He did not devote himself to solving the racial achievement gap. That would disqualify him. His, his resume would go in the circular file. So this professor said that the attempt to ban DEI statements as a precondition for faculty hiring was itself a form of red scare communism. They think that they're doing something apolitical, that they're simply doing something scholarly. If you fight back against it, you're the one who's politicizing education. DeSantis is the one who's politicizing education. They've been politicizing education for the last 60 years. If we put up a little hand and say, excuse me, we don't want to do this any longer. Oh, you're, you're, you're red baiters, you know. So they've got the power. That having been said, though, I still am somewhat reluctant for the president setting. And I think, and this may be just a dodge, uh, and, and as I say, I'm, I'm mostly on board with this effort. I'm certainly on board with the transparency. It, it, is, it should be completely uncontroversial to say that K through 12, you should have access to what your students are being taught. The parents do have, they are the primary people who, who raise children, not schools. I'm, I'm repeating what is now said often in conservative circles. This is no breakthrough on my part, but that is completely legitimate. It should be legitimate as well in college. Transparency is the key. So there are many, many uses of government power that are completely necessary. I would say, though, that we also need a cultural shift and we need to be continuing to give the, the truth of why we have racial disparities. We have to break those taboos. We have to talk about the fact that 66% of black 12th graders do not possess even basic mastery of, of math, 12th grade math skills. What is basic mastery? Partial, partial mastery of, of arithmetic, partial ability to read a linear function on a graph. 66% of black 12th graders do not even possess partial mastery of the most basic math skills. How then do we expect that Google should be 13% math in its computer engineering department, or that MIT's physics lab should be 13% black, absent racism. So we've got to get those facts out there, and we have to teach Western culture to stop apologizing for itself. Very, very well said. We have to teach Western cultures to stop apologizing for itself. And part of that, of course, is just having the difficult conversations in the first instance, being willing and able to break through the shibboleths and just be willing to engage and just talk about statistics, talk about disproportionate rates of, of, of various social maladies and whatnot. And Heather, you're very much on the vanguard of that. And I could not be more thankful for your work on that. Unfortunately, we're, we're out of time here. Would have loved to get into all the all of your wonderful work in policing and the war on cops and all of that. But perhaps we'll have to save that for, for a future episode if you'll be so gracious again to join us. But for now, at least, Heather McDonald, thank you so much for joining us this week. And we very much look forward to 
your book coming out, if I'm not mistaken, in less than a month now. So thank you so much again. It's a pleasure, Josh. Wonderful conversation. Thank you for your questions. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. You know, it's funny, if you had told me a couple years ago that I would have Heather McDonald on my show, we didn't even get to the war on cops, which is the issue that I first kind of became accustomed to reading Heather on, I would have laughed. But that speaks to just how prolific she is in other areas as well when it comes to the, the diversity delusion, to use another Heather McDonald term, and the DEI bureaucracy and, and the diversity crats that suffuse higher education and public life in America in general. It really just speaks to just how prolific she is that we didn't even have time in our conversation to get to the left's outrageous war on cops and their outrageous dystopian view of so-called criminal justice and their decarceral agenda, all of which Heather has been absolutely prolific on. I, I just want to circle back to one item at the beginning of our conversation, just to kind of put a button on, uh, on our conversation here with the great Heather McDonald. I, I thought what Heather did there was very astute. And this is a point that I think some of the two online millennials and Gen Z commentators tend to miss is the idea that so much of this modern woke equity paradigm for public life in America probably really does have its roots, actually, in affirmative action. I mean, you are you arguably could take it back even further than that. Than that. You could talk about how perhaps the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which obviously in so many ways was utterly just and necessary given the evils of the Jim Crow South, but you could argue that the seeds were at least laid in the Civil Rights Act of 1964 for the various equity Ibram X. Kennedy garbage that would then come later. That's the basic thesis that was given by Chris Caldwell in his provocative book, Age of Entitlement, from a couple of years ago. Chris Caldwell is with the Claremont Institute. But affirmative action comes really with the Bakke case of 1978 at the latest. Then there's some various court cases that deal with affirmative action. There's the the, the Grutter case from University of Michigan in the early 2000s, which yet again upheld the constitutionality of affirmative action. The court punted on affirmative action's constitutionality, or or not just constitutionality, by the way. I mean, yes, there obviously is a strong argument that taxpayer-funded public institutions that engage in affirmative action do violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, but there's also a very straightforward statutory argument that Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 expressly prohibits public institutions that receive taxpayer funding from discriminating on the basis of race in the context of higher education. So uh, when I say constitutional status, you know, I'm also talking to be very specific here about about statutory status and, and its compliance with Title VI as well. So, but anyway, you had the Grutter case of the 2000s. You had the Fisher case of 2013. Then it was punted up to the, to the court again a few years ago. Finally, 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 this term, we have these two cases out of Harvard and the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, that I am cautiously optimistic. I am I am usually pretty pessimistic about the judicial branch and the Supreme Court from a conservative perspective. But 
I tend to be optimistic about this one. I really do. And, and my reason for that is that even John Roberts himself, who at this point is not the fifth, but the sixth vote for the right-leaning block, this is one issue where John Roberts himself, of course, has been outspoken on since the get-go. And probably the most famous line that Chief Justice John Roberts has ever put into a judicial opinion since he, since he joined the U.S. Supreme Court was the Parents Involved case from 2007, where he famously said, quote, The way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. A very straightforward line that that's stuck in the minds of many there. So I am cautiously optimistic that we are finally going to see an end to America's horrific system of affirmative action, which is which, you know, contra the left's assertions that systemic racism pervades police forces and the corporate boardroom and all these various institutions. You know, state sanctioned racism actually does pervade higher education to this day thanks to affirmative action. And I think Heather very nicely kind of laid out there how affirmative action was a predicate for so many of our own modern woes and maladies when it comes to equity and systemic racism and wokeism and all this utter garbage that fundamentally is drowning America, is depleting us of the resources that we need to compete on a global stage with China every single time that I see some story from Heather or some other commentator who who writes about these topics, and I see some story that, oh, X government grant went to an institution based on intersectional qualities of the applicant, or, oh, Y person got a promotion at Z organization because he or she is like a black lesbian from Ghana or whatever, something like that. Every time I see a story like that, my first reaction, my very first reaction is, wow, Xi Jinping is, is sitting in Beijing, smiling ear to ear. That is fundamentally what we are doing with the diversity regime in America is we are destroying the country. That is what the war on merit is at its very core. And Heather McDonald is more on top of it than anyone else. So thanks again, Heather, for joining us this week. We hope you enjoyed this program with Heather McDonald. We'll be right back with you for our next episode shortly. Until then, I'm Josh Hammer. We'll see you next time. Being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The Debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. (laughs) She's like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The parting shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling, and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at Newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts.